0: Many of you know that I struggle with insomnia, uh, and that's mostly been since my son was born. You know, it, it kicks it off where you start thinking things like, oh my goodness, I am responsible for this person's life, and I only have 17 years, 8 months, and 16 days to save for college, and all this other stuff, and it keeps you awake. But there were a couple times earlier in my life where I had a sleepless night or two, and the first one I can remember was my first day in court as a defendant. Really my only day in court. I mean, I've, I've lived quite a life. It was traffic court, and it was for a ticket that I got. And I knew I didn't deserve it. This off-duty cop followed me back to my apartment because of something I had done that he didn't like. And he gave me a ticket, and it was all out of sorts and shady. And I, I knew I would win, but for some reason, as I lay there in bed, my mind started going through, what am I going to say? And what if he says this? And what if the judge says this? And what if? And, and by the time morning came, I was so unrested and frazzled as I stood there in the, in the courtroom and, and made my case. I thought, how on earth does anybody get out into a court day after day and wasn't yet used to talking in front of crowds? And shortly thereafter, I read this passage and felt very silly and thought, Stephen stood in a court where his life hung in the balance. And not only does he not seem to be all freaking out about what he'll say and and flustered and out of sorts, he has the eloquence and the presence of mind to use the opportunity to preach the gospel. Now, we've just met this man, Stephen. What we learned about him was that he is faithful, he's full of the Holy Spirit, and that he is one of the original seven deacons who are given the job of overseeing the distribution of food to the widows. And uh, he's the most prominent, clearly, in the way he's presented first, and we get the most information about him. And we find out here in this long passage uh, that Stephen is seemingly not kind of worn down by the ministry of the tables that he has to undertake, in addition to whatever his vocation is, but rather he's energized by it. He's, he's given more power and, and more desire to go out and serve people in different ways. And so when we see him at the beginning of this text, he's among the people doing great works and miracles and wonders. Then we find him in the synagogue and then before the council, the Sanhedrin, defending the faith against the attack of the religious leaders. And then we find him actually becoming the greatest thing you can be as a Christian. The the martyr of the faith, and he is the first martyr of the Christian faith, giving his life. Stephen was always ready to use any gift that he had for the glory of God and for the building up of the body, and so we see his gifts expanding, manifold. When he's faithful with little, he's given more. The deacon becomes uh, an apologist and a preacher and a miracle worker and ultimately a martyr and a saint who is looked up to by so many for inspiration during times of trouble. And all the trouble started, ironically, with a group of people who were called the synagogue of the freedmen. And the irony is noted in the Bible because it says, as it was called. Freedmen, of course, was a social class within Rome, and at its heart was people who had been slaves and were manumitted and were were free. Could have been a a bigger group of people than just that, but it was a group. This was very diverse. It was Greek-speaking Jews from all over. The cities that are named are in North Africa and in Turkey, uh, the the province of Asia. And they come together because they're angry with what they're hearing about what Stephen is doing and saying, and they begin to dispute with him. And even though they're called the synagogue of the freedmen, they make it clear that they are slaves to wrath and sin and anger and hatred. The charge that they ultimately bring when they grab Stephen and drag him to the council is blasphemy, blasphemy against God, blasphemy against Moses, and blasphemy against the temple, this holy place, as they call it. These are exactly the same charges that were brought against Jesus before the same council. And just like before, they employ false witnesses paid witnesses to try and ensure the outcome of the trial and as he's dragged before these people there's there's no thought that maybe he'll speak in his own defense and maybe he won't there's there's no fifth uh to plead in in this this culture there's there's no miranda rights and that's fine because as christians we don't have the right to remain silent about our faith when asked about it Now, granted, we do have uh, the Lord's commandment not to cast our pearls to swine and his example of saying nothing to Herod, but this is a public opportunity to proclaim the gospel. And just like Peter hasn't let even one of those slide, neither will Stephen. This sermon is the longest single address in a book of Acts, a book full of lengthy addresses. I'm sure I don't need to tell you that it's long. Well done, by the way, Mimi. Great reading and keeping us engaged. But we see that it's a different kind of sermon. Not only is it longer than what we have recorded from Peter, but, but it's, it's finally something else. Peter likes to give variations of the same thing. And, and he has his way of doing things. He'll answer the charges against him and weave in the gospel. Well, Stephen, perhaps because he's got a different mindset as one of these Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jews... He just starts at the beginning of the Bible and walks him through the gospel from the beginning and weaves in an answer to the charges here or there. It's kind of the opposite. And as he goes through this sort of annotated history of Israel, he emphasizes just the right things. God's blessing of Abraham before there was any physical land and apart from it. That the the land isn't really the core of who they are. The blessing of the patriarchs by Joseph before there was any temple. And and how Joseph, who blesses them, is the very one whom they rejected, foreshadowing what would happen with Christ. And, And then he turns to Moses himself, portrayed as the least likely possible deliverer, whose leadership and authority they rejected more often than not, again, foreshadowing how they would reject Jesus, how he had the stone that the builders rejected would become the corner stone, and how they turned easily to idolatry, and how that was a practice they brought with them into the promised land. And when we read this beautiful, incredibly well-organized, well-executed sermon, it's easy to forget that he gave it in front of people who despised him. It's easy to imagine him here in a pulpit with people listening attentively. Nodding along, saying yes, exactly. He's able to to make it through this thing, not dealing with you know a guy about to nod off in the fifth row, or, or you know like a teenager with their phone down here, going through Instagram, thinking, oh, he has no idea what I'm doing. No, no, no. This isn't the usual. This is people who despise him and hate him mocking and jeering and heckling and shouting and spewing venom, trying to to distract him and derail him and and break him. And this grows until it becomes an actual mob of teeth-gnashing murderers. And yet, it's clear as you read the text that he remains calm and cool and clear in his presentation. I can tell you from having preached a number of times Uh, hundreds probably at this point, at the rescue mission, where there are people there who don't want to be there, but they want the the meal, and so they're there. Or at least I can tell you the same thing, I think, probably about uh, the women's mission, where she often teaches that that it's distracting when you say the name of Jesus or you proclaim the gospel and someone sighs or chuckles or rolls their eyes real big. It's, It's hard to stay on task. I can't imagine how it is. That's Stephen then. When he knew that that they weren't just rolling their eyes no they were they were it was, he was stoking the fires of their anger with every word but he would not stop. He doesn't lose his temper and begin to condemn them and shout oaths at them. He doesn't back off and couch his words so that he won't offend them. No, he takes the sword of the spirit and like a scalpel applies it to their hearts. How is he able to do this? Had he perhaps rehearsed this sermon so many times that he could give it in his sleep, and so he didn't have to worry about it, it was just on autopilot? No. We, no you, listen, it says they seized him. All right? I, I don't have a ton of experience with seizing people, but I know you never like, tell someone, tomorrow at 2 o'clock we're going to seize you. Right? Seize him is always in the moment. They boiled over with anger and someone said, no, don't let him get away this time. Enough. And they grabbed him. He didn't have a chance to prepare his remarks. Was it perhaps just that Stephen was made of of good stuff? That that he was a hero of the faith of his own right? In verse 8, we're told he's filled with grace and power. Maybe that's just who he is. He's got more grace and power than us. We're told in verse 10, he's filled with wisdom. But go back to last time, verse 5. What are we told? He's a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And that is the answer to how he can give this address in these situations and not break. We're reminded again and again that he's filled with the Holy Spirit right up to verse 55, where he looks up into heaven at the the moment of death and sees it open up. And we're told again that he's full of the Holy Spirit and he sees God in his glory, and the Son of Man at the right hand of the Father. Like Peter and John, he is undoubtedly thinking about the words of Jesus, the promise from Luke 21. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors. For my name's sake, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. The Greek verb there is martyreo to bear witness, to, mar- to, to become a martyr. That's ultimately where we get that word martyr. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, Jesus said, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. It's the Holy Spirit that gives him these words and this comportment as he speaks. Now, if you are quite certain that all signs and wonders and miracles have now ceased, well, then you probably shouldn't pay much attention to Luke 21, 12 to 15 and that promise. But if you believe God is still doing miraculous things among his people, you are able to hang all your cares on this promise anytime you have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel to a hostile audience, even if it's an audience of one. In fact, in that moment, your main goal is to get out of the Holy Spirit's way and lean on Him and trust in Him. This is why I never really prepare a sermon. Right? Half the time, I start sentences. I don't even know like, where the path of how it will come for, to the end. I'm kidding, no. <laughs> if we have the opportunity to study, we ought to study. What we hear in these verses and this promise from Jesus is that when there is no time to prepare, the Spirit is always prepared. Just like we're told when we don't know what words to pray, the Spirit intercedes on our behalf with groanings we cannot fathom. Just like he gives us the words and and provides the words from us to God, he provides the words from God through us when necessary. And Stephen is zealous and fearless and deliberate here. He does not back down. And it and, and just makes me so sad when I think about how we live in a time now and in a culture now where mobs pop up very regularly. Anytime someone says something that is in some way offensive and they don't have stones in their hands to throw them at you, rather they've got smartphones in their hands to pile on with 280 characters And shame people and and sending threats and tweets and calling names. And that everyone seems to buckle when this happens. It reminds me of verse 12 in chapter 6 we just saw. So they stirred up the people. Now sometimes when this happens, the person in question has actually said or done something shameful. And they ought to apologize. But often it's a Christian having said something that is offensive to the culture. And the pile on begins... And it seems that more often than not, people will back off and say, hold on, no, so sorry, I didn't mean to offend, that we fear this sort of a mob more than we fear God. I'm so, I I, I wish I could take it back. Why? The words of life are offensive to the heart of the natural man, the heart of stone. And they're used to break that heart and convict that sinner. Or they simply make it harder. And that's what we see happening throughout the book of Acts, one or the other. This peace that Stephen has, it goes even beyond words as it becomes clear that this is the end of his earthly life. He knows the, the direction this is going, how this story ends. He's not glaring at his accusers turned executioners. He's not cursing at them. He's not begging them for mercy. He's not calling out, someone avenge my death. No, he's kind of over them by that point. Do you notice that? He's distracted by something far more important. His eyes are up at heaven. He looks to the skies. There's a book that I I once read called A Window to Heaven. Uh, A doctor had written it about all the times she had seen children find life in death, I think is the subtitle. And she talks about a seven-year-old girl with leukemia on her deathbed who sat up and said, The angels... They're so beautiful, Mommy. Can you see them? Do you hear their singing? I've never heard such beautiful singing. Put her head down on the pillow, smiling, and died peacefully. Well, we hear about this sort of vision often. We hear about people who've seen God, who've seen things at the the moment of death and spoken of them and give us hope. But, But Stephen's vision is even greater than that. This is the the glory of God and Jesus at the right hand of God. And it had such a great effect on him that the people looking at him could see it, that his face was like the face of an angel. It It became bright. It calls to mind how Moses, when he would go into the tent of meeting and meet with God, he'd come out and his face would be glowing to the point where he had to wear a veil because he was freaking everybody out. And we pray that our eyes would be open to this reality too if we could see the angels around us and the Father and the Son at His right hand interceding for us and watching over us. Our faces would often shine more like an angel's as well, I suggest. As this is all happening, a literal stone's throw away is this young man named Saul. We now call him St. Paul. And he would later write the words in Colossians 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. I can't imagine but that Paul was thinking of this moment when he had stood there watching the coats as everyone pelted stones at Stephen when he wrote those words. If you don't know quite what that means, what does it mean to set your mind on things above? We, we took a whole Sunday to look at that as we began our study of Acts chapter 1. You can find that on the website. But suffice to say, only after living a life of fixing his eyes on things above, on glorifying God and enjoying Him, could Stephen ever hope to die a death focused on things above of peace as he did. And he's so transfixed with his God, he almost seems disinterested in what's going on with these raging men around him. He has one thought about these guys, and it is, God, don't hold this sin against him. That's what he prays with his dying breath, because his eyes are so firmly fixed on things above. Makes me think of a song from some years ago that I heard on Christian radio, often, maybe a little too often, but you know what? That made it stick in my mind. The words, the words are thus, And I'll praise you in this storm, and I'll lift my hands, that you are who you are, no matter where I am. And every tear I've cried, you hold in your hand. You never left my side, and though my heart is torn I will praise you in the storm. And then in the bridge, it goes to the words of the psalmist. "I, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Well, Stephen lifts his eyes to the hills and then a little bit higher yet and sees where his help comes from. Now, the question often asked is, does Stephen literally see with his eyes this vision? Or is he just kind of overwhelmed with the presence of God and the peace of God? And so he's speaking poetically. I couldn't tell you certainly, but it seems to me the language read most simply tells us that he saw. He saw these things. But either way, he knew it was Jesus. He knew Jesus was waiting for him, and it gave him comfort. And I've seen this comfort many times. I'm sure there are doctors and nurses and others in the medical field who've seen an awful lot more death than I have, but I've been there when a lot of people leave this life. And I have seen so many times people with such great peace. And sometimes they will look up and they will gasp and they will smile. Sometimes they will simply solemnly say, I know where I am headed. And I have seen many, many very peaceful deaths of those saints who knew where their hope was, where their help comes from. Now we don't know if Stephen was among the hundreds who had seen the resurrected Christ before his ascension but he sees him now and he does not look like the dusty itinerant rabbi the ordinary guy that was walking around Palestine during his three and a half years of ministry no now he sees him in his glory much like John saw him in Revelation 1 we read those words in the midst of the lampstands there was one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash "...around his chest. The hair of his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength." Undoubtedly, one of the first thoughts that must have entered Stephen's mind is, he really is alive. And that makes all the difference when he's facing his death having bet it all on the hope of the resurrection. And not only does Stephen see Jesus, but Jesus sees Stephen. And perhaps that's just as important. That, that he's being seen by Jesus Christ in this moment. He's not outside of his view. I think about the, the moment when Peter, having failed in his courage and resting on his own strength, ran away from the mob, and a short time later denied Jesus and and failed to bear witness. And then he heard the crow of the rooster and locked eyes with Jesus and felt himself just filled with regret and shame and sorrow and went out and wept bitterly. This is perhaps the opposite. Having not backed down, having given witness, borne witness to the mob In the moment that it mattered, he looks up and locks eyes with his Savior. And any shame that he might have ever felt was swallowed up in the righteousness of Christ. And Jesus, be assured, is looking down now and he sees you and he sees me, even when we cannot see him with our eyes. And just as sure as he knew what Stephen was going through, because he had gone through just about the exact same thing He knows what you're going through. He knew that Stephen had never felt more alone. Can you imagine feeling more alone than having people come around you as a mob and accuse you and lie about you and no one says a word in your defense? And then that you realize they're going to kill me. They're going to go through with it. And I'm all alone. I'm the object of all their hate and anger. Well, Jesus knew exactly what that felt like. Just a few months prior, exactly that had happened to him. He knows our pain. He is acquainted with suffering. And know that He is always looking down on us in love, knowing what it feels like to feel alone and rejected. Question may be asked, what is he doing standing at the right hand of God? I don't have time because of how long the the text is to talk about whether he should be sitting or standing and why is he standing when it says elsewhere that he's sitting. But let's just say he's at the right hand of God for one reason, and that is to make intercession for us. He's there to intercede on our behalf. And this is not just for the moment of your death. This is for every moment of your life. Whenever you fall, whenever you sin, if we confess our sin, he is actively interceding. When he said, it is finished, that was making the payment for our sin was finished. His work on our behalf continues. He intercedes continually. And he will not forget us. Spurgeon said it was fitting that that he brought up Joseph here because it made him think of when Joseph was in prison. And he said to the cupbearer, now, when everything's well for you again, remember, put in a good word for me, intercede on my behalf with Pharaoh. Pharaoh cupbearer said, yeah, no problem. Completely forgot about him. Went back to the, you know how, when you're bearing the cup for Pharaoh, there's all sorts of stuff on your mind. Jesus won't forget about us. He makes intercession on our behalf. And this is the ultimate hope for Stephen because this was the ultimate goal in everything that he did in his life. Whether it was waiting tables, doing miracles, proclaiming the gospel, or even being a witness to the point of death. It was all about bringing glory to God. In Sunday school, we're studying the Baptist Catechism. But this morning I mentioned just as good, perhaps, as the Heidelberg Catechism because of the beauty of the questions and the answers. And the first question is this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I am not my own. but Belong, body and soul, and in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Not only as they drag him out to kill him do they find that their heckling and mockery and lies were unable to steal his sense of peace, but even brutal violence won't do the trick. As he is about to die and as he is dying, his final two prayers are precisely the prayers of Jesus when he was on the road to the cross and being nailed to the cross He says, receive my spirit, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, calling to mind when Jesus says, Father, into your hands I command my spirit. And then he says, do not hold this sin against them, reminding us that Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Again, later Paul will write, as far as you are able, live at peace with all. Right? And we think, how far can you take that? Well, Stephen takes it pretty far. Sometimes I think of that passage and I go, I'm glad that little condition's in there as far as I'm able. right? God knows I've got my limits. right? The guy next door, he's always blasting that music. He lets his dog come over and make a mess in my yard. The lady in the cubicle down the hall from me, she's always telling lies about me, making me look foolish. I can only take so much before I just can't live at peace with everyone. Well, Stephen is able here, by the power of the Holy Spirit, not only to live at peace with all, but to die at peace with those who are killing him. And that's not native to Stevo here. Where does that come from? Well, we keep being reminded by the text, from the Holy Spirit. It comes from the Holy Spirit. One more question. Are these prayers really answered? Or is it just kind of a nice thing that Stephen was thinking of God at the moment of his death? I mean, he still died, right? Granted, he didn't pray that he would survive, that he would be rescued. Rather, that God would receive him. But you'd think if God is looking out for him, watching over him, perhaps he would come down. And and just like when they picked up stones to kill Jesus and it wasn't yet his time, he walked out of their midst and they were not able to stone him. Now we think of the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before Nebuchadnezzar when they said, our God can save us from this fire in this furnace. And even if he doesn't, we will not bow down and worship your image. Yes, Jesus saved the woman caught in adultery from stoning. She wasn't ready yet to face her creator. But in this case, God did not stop the stones in their tracks And Stephen followed in the footsteps of his Savior and clearly was honored to do so. In fact, in John 17, when Jesus prays for us, he says he prays not that we be taken out of the world, but that we be kept from the evil one, kept through the trouble, kept even through death. And yes, it looked like Stephen lost that day from a worldly perspective, but we know that Christ had already won the victory for him. Victory over sin and Satan and even death. And more importantly, Stephen knew that as well. But what about his last prayer? Father, do not count this sin against them. Do not hold this sin against them. Is that just Stephen being nice? Or is this something that he really prayed and God really heard and God moved his hand and answered it? I've thought about this at some length. Is, is this just nice, wishful thinking? When Stephen prays this, what about when Jesus prayed it? Remember, among other people, he's praying for Saul. Saul, who is this young, hot-shot rabbi, star pupil of Gamaliel, called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. Saul, who's full of anger right now because he and everyone else has been out-argued by this nobody, and he's so mad and when, when you hear some people say, well, he's holding the coats, because that's kind of noncommittal. He's saying, well, I don't want to get involved, but I'm not going to stand in your way. I'll just stay over here. No, 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 no. In that culture, and he says, I'm holding the coats, this means he wants to be remembered as being central, right? It was last minute, but remember, I organized that particular stoning. And, and this is what he is and what he wants in this moment. And he heard the prayer, do not hold this sin against them. We know that because it says Stephen shouted it in a loud voice and it had no effect on him, at least not right away, other than for him to say, I like the way that felt and I want it to happen more and to go forward persecuting the church all the more. But the Holy Spirit was at work and the Lord Jesus had his eye on Saul because God had elected him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And ultimately, he would write most of the books of the New Testament. And if the woman crawling on the ground, tapping at the tassel at the hem of Jesus' garment, has her prayer heard and answered, then Stephen, with one foot on the other side of the pearly gates, certainly has his prayers heard and answered. And what a wonderful prayer this is. Have you ever prayed this? When someone has wronged you, God, please don't count that sin against them. I understand in that moment the fruit of the Spirit that I'm, I'm no less deserving of God's wrath and no more deserving of His grace than the person who just wronged me, insulted me, stole from me, made a fool of me. I forgive, and God, please don't, please don't count that sin against them. Would that even make sense? Well, I don't know. We, we hear Jesus' words in John 20. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. We read in Luke, what you bind on earth has been bound in heaven. What you loose on earth has been loosed in heaven. We're at least related to the forgiveness of the sinners around us because we're called to proclaim that forgiveness to them or to withhold it by not proclaiming it. And then the Lord, in the Lord's prayer, ties our forgiveness how we forgive others right tells us to pray forgive us our debts even as we have forgiven our debtors and again when we're faithful with the little things a little slight here or there we will be faithful with bigger things we can't think that i won't endure you to take credit for that thing that i did but i will pray that god will forgive you when you're throwing stones at me and killing me forgiveness It sets us free as much as it sets free those that we forgive, if not more. But the fact remains here that this sermon was cut short as the men became enraged and covered their ears and shouted like children and then rushed him and silenced him and dragged him outside of the city just as they did with Jesus. The fact remains that it seems like the whole thing, prayers and sermon and all, was ineffective because, I mean, think about Peter's big sermon debut. What was the result? They were all cut to the heart who heard it. That doesn't happen here. Their hearts are filled with rage. Yeah, just as the hearts of the Sanhedrin were filled with rage in chapter 5 when Peter preached to them. The fact is that God is glorified by the gospel being proclaimed regardless of the outcome of whether one hardens their heart or accepts the gospel and puts their faith in Jesus. In fact, part of the indictment against the rebellious is that they hear the gospel and yet reject it. God's sovereign purpose is served. And in this case, with Stephen, God's sovereign purpose was that he would become the first martyr. At least in the sense of giving up his life. He certainly is not the first martus, meaning witness. Today, that word has completely lost all meaning, right? Martyr? Oh, don't be such a martyr. Martyr? What do you mean by that? I mean, don't, don't draw so much attention to yourself and your suffering. That's not what a martyr initially is. Someone who bears witness, not to themselves, but to someone else, to Jesus Christ. Many are called martyrs who don't fit the definition of a witness of, of God in, at all. I mean, we, we have uh, those people who might go out and do a horrible atrocities and, and those in their group will say, oh, that's a martyr. We have people of other religious groups. Uh, they're, they're great martyrs. For example, Joseph Smith is called a martyr in the Mormon church. Because a mob came and, and lynched him, or rather, rather shot him and threw him out a window. But then we realized that he didn't kneel down and pray God forgive them. Rather, he pulled out the, the gun that he had been slipped and he fired it into the crowd until it was empty, trying to take as many with him as he could. Compare that with Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and those missionaries to the Wodoni Indians, they had guns in their possession when they landed there, to bring the gospel to this unreached group. Not to shoot anyone, but because they said to their wives, worst case scenario, if they get too aggressive, we'll fire the guns in the air and they'll leave and we'll get in the plane and come home. And when that group of Indians came and began to spear them to death, no one pulled out his gun and shot anyone. Instead, they became true martyrs. And when they died, Their wives, their sisters said, we forgive you, took their children and moved into that very same community and brought them to faith. And two of those present, Dawa and Kimo, Kimo was one of those who actually did the spearing of these men, later after they came to faith would tell them, tell their Rachel Saint and Elizabeth Elliot that after the missionaries had been killed, they were in two different places, this woman and this man, And both of them heard singing coming from above the trees. And when they looked over in that direction, saw lights shining. This is where the title of the book comes from, Through the Gates of Splendor. They determined this was them going home to the greeting of an angelic chorus. We hear that and think that's what martyrdom looks like, to be a true witness. We think of Bonhoeffer being taken off to the gallows from a concentration camp, saying to his friend, don't worry about me, this is the end, but for me it's the beginning of life. And we are all called to be martyrs. You don't have to die to be a witness. We're all called to be faithful. In fact, in Acts 1-8, what does Jesus say? You will be my martyrs, And here in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world. The last little section here, the last little sentence is, Then he fell asleep. A euphemism for death used outside of the church, but with more meaning inside of the church. We all want to die peacefully, I think, or most of us do. When we say that, we mean in bed, surrounded by loved ones, whispering and holding our hand. And yet, Stephen dies peacefully. He falls asleep on the hard ground, his body broken and mangled, surrounded not by loved ones, whispering sweet nothings, but rather by his enemies, Cursing his name, and yet he dies peacefully. The comfort and the joy we have in Christ through the Holy Spirit is not dependent on our situation, our surroundings, our our circumstance. Though outwardly we are wasting away, Paul will write, yet inwardly we are renewed day by day so that our light and momentary troubles are not even worthy of being compared to the glory that is to come. And why is it that Christians are said to fall asleep? Because we are going to wake up at the sound of a trumpet. It's a good way to wake up. Hope and comfort that goes beyond anything that the world could offer and is far beyond anything that the world could take away. That's what the gospel offers for us. And the hope, the comfort that we will overcome to the end, not be taken out of the world, but be kept in the world and kept from the clutches of the evil one. Let me close with the full answer to that first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is my only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to Him. Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would be ready and willing wholeheartedly to live for you, remembering that we belong not to ourselves, but to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, in life and in death, in body and in soul, that, Lord, we would be witnesses, that we would not back off and apologize when we've offended the world and the mobs begin to gather, that we would look up and set our eyes on things above and trust that you are there at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us, and ready to welcome us home, if it should come to that. Lord, we are so thankful for the example of this man, Stephen. And Lord, we know that the same Spirit is in us that was in him, even that was in Christ Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us the boldness, and the calmness, and the peace that he had. In your holy name, amen.